Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nicholas Investment Insights. This week we revisit the idea of modern monetary theory, or MMT, in the frame of the rampant monetary expansion, or in other words, printing, that central banks have been licensed to do in an effort to support economies during the coronavirus pandemic. Modern monetary theory is an unorthodox but popular macroeconomic theory that describes currency as a public monopoly. Issues like unemployment are caused by scarce currency supply, restricting the availability of the financial assets needed to pay taxes and satisfy savings desires. Generating more of it at a fiscal or government level will then create employment and stimulate demand, effectively meaning a government can finance any budget deficit by de facto monetization and hence have no monetary limits. The commonly held belief that the use of MNT is a quick road to rampant inflation, with countries like Argentina and Zimbabwe often cited, has now been countered with the fact that more developed countries have employed huge monetary expansion, supporting individuals, companies and, budget and government budgets with seemingly little inflationary pressure. So the question remains, is the 2020 central bank stimulus essentially modern monetary theory by another name? Here to help answer the question, we have special guest and friend of the show, Dr. Stephen Hale. Dr. Hale is a lecturer at the School of Economics at the University of Adelaide, one of Australia's leading voices on modern monetary theory, and also author of the book, Economics for Sustainable Prosperity. Dr. Stephen Hale, welcome back to Nucleus Investment Insights. Thanks very much for having me and hello, Tim and Damien. Great to have you on and here to share his thoughts uh, and also explore more about MMT and how these themes can be used in our portfolios. I'm joined by Nucleus Wealth's Head of Investments, Damien Klassen. Hello to you, Damien. Hi, Tim. Hello. Uh, and now, uh, just a quick reminder before we get started to subscribe on YouTube and to click the notification bell to be notified of when we go live or have a new webinar to watch or, of course, follow us on your preferred podcast platform. We also uh, ask if you could take a moment to click like on the video now to help our show grow. And of course, for those listening in live now, feel free to drop in your questions in the YouTube live stream chat to have them answered along the way. So we'll jump into the agenda. It's not so much an agenda, but a series of talking points today, just sort of highlighting some, some key areas that we, we wanted to chat about. Um, we'll, of course, kick off with a, a brief uh, background to MMT uh, from Dr. Hale. Uh, we're looking at MMT and inflation, inflation expectations. Uh, so having a bit of a look at countries that may be uh, closest to considering modern monetary theory, uh, whether or not the US can run hot economically without modern monetary theory, uh, having a, some thoughts around government responsibility and trust to, uh, to be able to implement it correctly. Uh, and then of course, finally, uh, rolling into our investment implications and thoughts on how these themes can impact the portfolios here at Nucleus Wealth. So I might hand over to Dr. Stephen Hale, if you wouldn't mind perhaps uh, kicking us off with uh, a bit of background for those that perhaps aren't as fully versed in uh, MMT as you are. Um, thanks very much. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, if I can start by asking everybody to, first of all, have an open mind. And secondly, I just wanted to say modern monetary theory has nothing whatsoever to do with printing money, and it's nothing to do with the monetization of government debt. Um, they, these are a, a common uh, misconception 
Uh, and uh, if we can just get them out of the way, first of all, then I'll, I'll just say in the next few minutes what, what modern monetary theory actually is. It's just a brand name for an approach to thinking about how the monetary system works, um, which has implications for thinking about um, fiscal policy and the role of the federal government in our economy generally. Um, the okay. most important difference between uh, MMT and the old paradigm or uh, the, what you might regard as uh, mainstream macroeconomics is that we take the monetary system seriously and we don't think the traditional approach to macroeconomics, which has been dominant over the last 40 years, really has done that. Um, I don't want to criticise neoclassical macroeconomics here. Um, uh, if, if you want to have a podcast to do that, you'd probably be better off getting Steve Keen back on than me. He's the expert uh, as, far as, as far as that's concerned. But um, MMT views the economy as a set of interlocking balance sheets um, evolving over time, always with the potential to evolve in ways which might lead to a more fragile financial system and might be unsustainable. And the most important thing that we think the old mainstream approach to macroeconomics ignores is the distinction between a currency issuer and currency users in our monetary system and the ways in which their balance sheets interact over time. So you and I are obviously currency users. Before we can spend dollars, we have to find them from somewhere. We've either got to earn them or they've got to come out of our past savings or we've got to borrow them. But if we borrow dollars now, of course, in the future, we're going to have a burden of debt that we have to repay. That has implications for our behavior in the future. And we could even end up getting into financial distress and being uh, insolvent. Um, but the federal government, the Commonwealth government, is not a currency user. It's a currency issuer. It doesn't have to go and find dollars before it spends them. Instead, every dollar it spends is a new dollar in our monetary system. This is literally true. Every measure of the money supply in Australia increases by a dollar every time the federal government spends a dollar. So if you're talking about printing money, uh, and you mean by that, the electronic issuance of currency, this is something that the Australian Commonwealth Government does every single day. Prior to the pandemic, they were spending about $1.5 trillion. Uh, no, that's not right. They're <laughs> spending about $1.5 billion every day. Uh, and every one of those dollars was a, was a new dollar. It was a dollar being credited to the reserve balances of our private banks at the RBA and indirectly to the bank accounts of people within the private sector that the government was, uh, was uh, transferring funds to, whether they were employing people or buying goods and services or, or making welfare payments um, for that matter. So the government spends dollars into the system. Um, uh, once those dollars are in the system, they're available 
to uh, pay taxes or, for that matter, to buy government bonds. Um, taxes are not necessary in order to fund Commonwealth government spending. They are necessary to prevent Commonwealth government spending being inflationary and eventually hyperinflationary. The taxes play a number of roles within our system at the federal level, but the most important role they play is to limit the ability of the private sector to spend, to create room within the productive capacity of our economy for the government to spend, to avoid government spending being inflationary. And of mm. course, at least in the last uh, 38 years, the government has had the uh, habit of when it spends more than it taxes, in other words, when it runs what we call a, a deficit, putting more dollars into the monetary system that it takes out of the monetary system, um, it's developed the practice since 1982 of approximately, anyway, auctioning treasury securities, selling uh, treasury bonds and treasury notes to, um, to uh, take the uh, additional dollars that is put into the banking system back out of the, the banking system again to withdraw those dollars from the monetary system in order to prevent the banks having excess reserves of cash, which would mean that uh, um, because banks had excess reserves of cash, there wouldn't be banks that were short of exchange settlement funds needing to borrow on the overnight market, and the Reserve Bank would lose control of the cash mm. rate, which would fall below its target. That was the reason for issuing Treasury bonds to match deficit spending that was given by the Reserve Bank uh, in 1982 when this practice was, was, uh, was introduced. Prior to that, um, uh, um, although Treasury bonds were issued, if there wasn't sufficient demand out there in the market for those Treasury bonds at what was the Reserve Bank's preferred yield for them, then actually the RBA supplied the funds directly to the government and just held on. To, to, to those bonds. Once interest rates were deregulated in Australia in the early 1980s, we moved to the current system. Of course, a lot of the logic for the current system um, disappeared in, in March this year when the RBA started doing quantitative easing and putting uh, excess mm. funds back into the banking system again. But I'm, I'm going slightly off the point there, just to, just to start off by saying taxes do not literally fund your spending if you are a currency issuer. Every dollar you spend is a new dollar. You then tax some of those dollars back out of the system. Um, if you spend more than you tax, you're running a deficit. You're not going to run out of dollars, however. You're the currency issuer. And why does the government issue treasury securities? It's not because it needs to borrow dollars in order to allow itself to spend. It's the currency mm -hmm. issuer. Um, the reason for issuing treasury bonds, well, there are a number of those, but what, the one that I've just given was to withdraw reserves from the banking system to keep control over interest rates. Now, our government is a special type, and we're getting to the important point now. Our government is a special type of currency issuer. It is a full monetary sovereign. To be a full monetary sovereign, three things have to be true about a government. You have to, yes, you have to issue a currency and you have to collect taxes in that currency. 
um, in order, as I was just saying, to to um, uh, maintain the value of that currency and avoid your spending being inflationary. Uh, secondly, you have to not um, guarantee to convert that currency into any commodity or any foreign currency at a fixed rate. In other words, you have to have a floating exchange rate. You have to have a genuinely fiat currency, which we've had in Australia since 1983. And thirdly, and this is important as well, the government has to have no significant foreign currency debt. If mm. you have foreign currency debt, then you've got financial liabilities that are denominated in a currency that you don't issue and you're not a full monetary sovereign. So if you issue your own currency, if you have a floating exchange rate and you have no foreign currency uh, denominated uh, 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 liabilities that are significant anyway, you're a full monetary sovereign. If you are a full monetary sovereign, then while when you are doing your budgeting, you face real resource constraints because in our economy, as in every other economy, there is a limited supply of labor and skills and capital equipment and technology and natural resources and institutional capacity. And if total government and private sector spending goes beyond the productive capacity of their economy, uh, it's inflationary. So you face an inflation constraint or a real constraint. You do not face any purely financial constraint. It is literally impossible for the Australian Commonwealth government ever to run out of Australian dollars. It is literally impossible for there to ever to be a financial crisis relating to Australian Commonwealth government debt, given the way that our monetary system currently works. So you have real constraints. You have no purely financial constraint. And um, what we sometimes describe as the third axiom of modern monetary theory, um, if you run a surplus, if the government runs a surplus, as the Howard government did for a few years, and as uh, successive governments have been trying to do in Australia since the global financial crisis, and they thought they were on the brink of doing last year, what you are doing is you are driving the non-government part of our monetary system, if we ignore the rest of the world for the moment, the private sector, into deficit. A government mm. surplus is a private sector deficit. If the government spends more than it taxes, they're making a net contribution of dollars to our monetary system. If they tax more than they spend, they're taking dollars out of our monetary mm. system and weakening private sector balance sheets. So government surplus is a private deficit. On the other hand, a government deficit is a private sector surplus. So when people worry about the very high level of fiscal deficit that there's going to be this year, probably in excess of 10% of GDP, they can be a little bit more relaxed about it, actually, because it's better to think of that as a private sector surplus, mm. as the government supporting the economy when it's not going to be inflationary to do so, and indeed it was essential to do so. And we can actually see that in the news in the last day or two. There have been a, a number of articles about the massive increase in private sector saving this year. Mm. The private sector is running a huge financial surplus, and there are a lot of um, households that are going to be in a stronger financial position after the pandemic than they were before as far as their balance sheets were concerned. How has this been possible? Well, um, a lot of people have been fortunate enough to keep their jobs, have kept their incomes, but for much of the last year, they haven't been able to spend 
as much mm, as they would have been right. able to before. So they've been saving, their balance sheets have been getting stronger. Well, what's helped to support incomes in general and to keep, uh, we haven't seen uh, overall uh, um, personal disposable incomes falling in Australia this year, they've been rising a bit. What's made that possible? The government's deficit spending. Once you understand these things, it gives you a, a different perspective for thinking about the appropriate role of the government in the economy. You don't start to panic about the high deficit spending this year. You see that actually as, as, uh, as essential, we, we, we would have had a catastrophic situation if they hadn't engaged in that deficit spending. It's actually going to strengthen a lot of private sector balance sheets. Sure, what people sometimes call the national debt, the government's debt is going to increase over time and they'll have a net debt of a trillion dollars before very long. But all the government's debt is, is dollars that they've spent into our monetary system and not yet taxed back out of the system again. It's no more or less than that. It's not a debt that they ever actually have to repay in the future. It's not a burden on future generations of taxpayers. That's the, that's the wrong way of thinking about it. I like to think about it as our net money supply. It's mm. dollars that are in our monetary system, which the private sector has not had to borrow into existence because the government has spent them into existence. That's rather a long introduction. And actually, Stephen, um, I mean, one of, the, one of the things which I think probably gets missed a lot is that, um, you know, the, the, the productivity of that spending is is still important. Like, the, the, like you know, I guess what in the end what we're talking about is saying, uh, you know, you, you spoke about having scarce resources of, of mm. uh, human capital and, and you know, these other factors. If you go out and say, right, um, as part of this money, everyone's getting a free whatever for doing nothing, um, that that's less productive than, than saying, okay, we're actually, we've, got, we've got these assets we can build which will actually create, you know, either more demand or, or improve or lower costs for everyone or, or improve the, the actual capacity of the economy by you know producing energy cheaper or, or whatever it is it's that, that, that so i guess what i'm saying is i guess what i'm coming to is um you know there's there's you, you need to separate those decisions don't you into, into saying um what are the actual decisions made is it productive or non-productive and the second part is how is it going to be funded and um that that how it's going to be funded shouldn't affect the um your opinion about whether it was whether this was a successful um does that make sense it absolutely does, yeah. The only point I would add is that there hasn't really, it, it's not really the right way to look at what's happened this year to call it a stimulus. It's not been a stimulus in that we've not been trying to overinflate a balloon which has been you know, uh, on the brink of bursting. There, there's been a balloon which has been deflating rapidly hmm. and we've been pumping extra air in to stop the balloon from collapsing. So it's been a support package uh, there's there's no likelihood at any point in the foreseeable future of this deficit spending being significantly inflationary. There is a potential upside from it, which is that some people are going to emerge from this crisis with less debt than they had before. Other people are going to emerge with more saving than they had before. And given that we have the world's second highest level of household debt relative to GDP. And given that, if you go on the RBA site and look at their chart pack, household saving in recent years has been collapsing almost down to, in net terms, zero, which is 
where it was just before the global financial crisis, the temporary very large jump in household saving this year is actually going to mean that a lot of people have got healthier balance sheets. And that in itself is a productive thing to, to have done, supporting people's incomes uh, and, of course, keeping uh, a lot of people, um, only temporarily, I'm afraid, in, in, in some cases because of the reversal of it, out of poverty by having significantly increased what used to be called New Start, the uh, job seekers payment. Um, it hasn't been inflationary. It's had lots of positive effects. But you're right. Uh, as we look into the future and as the economy recovers, it, it would be wrong to think that there was any good reason, given that there's no significantly inflationary episode expected on the horizon, it would be wrong to try to push the government budget back towards surplus when that's not necessary. But yeah. that's where, with the longer-term investments, yes, we should be making those investments which are necessary to enhance our productive capacity in the future. And that's not just about economic growth because we can't have a sort of blind growth at any cost view of the world in the future. It has to also be about making what is going to be an essential. It's going to be forced on us by the climate and also by the rest of the world in the next mm -hmm. few years. We have to make a more rapid transition towards renewables and uh, a more um, ecologically sustainable well, economy so, generally. So I, I, I think there's a rabbit hole there we could disappear down for a while. I, mean, I don't mm -hmm. want to disagree with, I, don't, I definitely don't disagree with any of that, but let's let's sort of put to the side where it's going. I guess I guess yeah. I, I have a concern about the, um, I don't have a concern about the dollar amount that's being spent in, in the Australian budget. I guess what I, I have a concern about is the um, where it's being positioned in mm. that a lot of it's um, uh, to support capital expenditure for, for companies mm. and companies have got plenty of spare capacity at the moment. They don't need the... And, and Absolutely if they do spend, agreed. If they do spend capital expenditure, they're probably going to be buying equipment to fire people and... Mm. Um, yeah, and, and, and reduce their costs that way. And so I guess what yeah, I guess what I'm saying is I, I think part of the reason why it's not inflationary is it's pointed in the wrong direction. And a lot mm -hmm. of that money's gonna go offshore anyway. If you if you if anyone who spends money on capital expenditure, we don't we don't manufacture very much here. So you're basically helping to support China, Japan, the US, you know, wherever they're making robots and and um you know, and, and trucks and cars and capital goods. Yeah. So. I agree with you entirely as far as that's concerned. I, I if it was, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm quite upfront about it. I, I'm a, uh, I don't mind admitting where I am in the political spectrum. I'm, I'm a green lefty. Yep. Uh, and I think that we have become scared of, uh, and it's not just green lefties that think this. There are very influential economists like Mariana Mazzucato. Um, that, that would say this, we have become scared of uh, public investment or of uh, people talk about picking winners. I prefer to think about um, influencing the future direction of, mm. of our economy and engaging in nation building investments. And uh, I think that in, in partnership between the uh, public and private sector, some of this can be done through the private sector, some of it could be done directly um, by federal and state governments themselves. Um, mm. This, the next few years should be an opportunity if, uh, if we either 
have the available real resources, and I'm thinking about uh, spare capacity in relevant businesses and and mm. uh, people with the appropriate skills and materials or can create them, um, we should be ramping up our investments in uh, a much more rapid transition away from fossil fuels as far as electricity is concerned, an increasing shift towards electricity as far as our power system is concerned. And there are, um, it's about time that we, we, we think about uh, fast rail between Sydney and Melbourne for example, things like well, that should well, be we, back on the table. Yeah, well, let's 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 step away from I guess specifics and go. And it's, yeah, but I, I, I'm just saying I agree with you, really. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and I guess where I'm coming to, from from that, there's the next one is saying, and I think it's um, we've got a a, uh, a commenter on, on YouTube sort of chasing into this. I think in a different way is saying, well, um, you know, if if we put a lot of if we go and spend a lot of money into trying to um, say keep house prices higher. For, for um, people who own it or, or, or existing assets, you know, how, how do we keep existing assets sort of at, at current levels? I guess I'm putting that into the, the unproductive side, which which probably is a little bit inflationary, but it's not good inflation. It's just, um, you know, inflation from, from trying to bid asset prices higher as opposed to, um, you know, inflation that comes because people have jobs and their wages are rising. And so because wages are rising and, and we've got full employment, that that, that sort of starts to tick over. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with you about that. I think that uh, um, why, how and why did we get out of the habit of making investments in public housing in Australia? And well, why Victorian did, government is yeah, busy so, in that area. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I'm certainly with you on, on, on public housing as being, yes, I think that's uh, certainly some low level hanging fruit. And obviously the Victorian government's decided to step in. And so it'll be interesting to see whether we get some economic data coming out of that over the next little while that hopefully supports those views. Even that social housing, I think, largely, which is not public housing, it's not quite the same thing. But yes, I, I agree with you. We really need to think about what we value in Australia in the years to come, whether we have the real resources uh, in order to, in order to um, construct what we value. Um, and uh, you're right, just uh, uh, um, throwing resources at investments by businesses which are operating at you know, two-thirds or 70% of capacity at the moment don't need to make capital investments anyway um uh, uh, capital utilization in australia this is another reason um that people shouldn't be so concerned about uh, about a potential big inflationary breakout there's no upward pressure on wages actually it would be good if uh, inflation moved towards a more normal uh, times we need upward pressure on wages for that to happen so we need to well, be close to full employment yeah. And, and, and there are other things that happen as well. Um, and, uh, and it is a bit chicken yeah. and egg, though, isn't it? Because the government came out just recently saying, no, no we're going to cap a whole bunch, you know, quarter of a million public servants that will only get 1% pay rises because we can't afford it. And, and the RBA even came out, I think, last year or the year before, you know, talking about how they were going to, they were capping their own in, internal staffs. One, and they're saying, both of you guys are saying, we, we need wage inflation. Doesn't you should start at home and get some wage inflation from from governments at least if you can't get it from from retail. From yeah, none of this is directly down to MMT, uh, of course, 
but I agree with you a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, with with yeah. with that, you were going to ask me about um, inflation and inflationary expectations and the physical. Yeah. Things, I think. Yeah, I did, and that was it. Yeah, yeah I guess I'm, I'm vague. I'm slowly meandering towards it, but actually, maybe I could just start with the whole. Um, so, since the crisis has started. We've got this interest in, I mean, one of the big issues with MMT is that um, from an investment perspective is saying, well, we can see what the, we, we'd see what will happen if, if this takes hold. And, and it's a very different environment to what we've been in for the last 20 or 30 years. Um, we're just trying to work out how how likely it is to come. And so I guess um, there's certainly been, uh, you know, since, since the, the crisis started, there's been a lot of money um, spent by governments. How much more acceptance, I guess, you, do you think you're seeing, and and in terms of um, sort of from official sources of, of MMT, and 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 how much pushback, I guess, are you getting as well? Um, well, first thing I'd like to say about that is that Australia has had well, modern monetary theory is just a description of the monetary system, so it's either. Um, in some ways, it's it's bound to be oversimplistic, like any. Uh, theoretical approach to a complex system is, but um, it's either largely correct or largely incorrect. I think it's largely correct, and although there have, has obviously been a lot of pushback as far as MMT is concerned, um, some of that has not been awfully well informed because it, it's been a, a, attacking something which modern monetary theory isn't. Modern monetary theory is a description of how our monetary system works. Uh, and I haven't seen any criticisms of modern monetary theory which have been based on any facts within it, anything that we say are facts within it, being inaccurate. Um, so we have MMT already. If people think, oh, um, isn't this going to give politicians a lot of uh, power and they're irresponsible, all we're saying is they already have that power and they have all, they've always had it. Mm. We've had, we've, our government has been a monetary sovereign government, a full monetary sovereign government since the 1980s. Um, uh, are we going to introduce modern monetary theory? It's here already. We already have modern monetary theory. It's just a matter of whether we understand it um, yeah. or not. And I, well, I don't that... see anything, I don't see any good reason for misrepresenting the monetary system because yeah. you don't you don't trust politicians. You may as well, well understand the system and then think about how you're going to constrain political behaviour. Yeah, and I, I do think it's a little curious as well that we say, look, um, I'm happy to vote people in who can send us off to war, but I don't want anyone in there who might spend too much money on, you know, other things. He's like saying, well, if if we're if we're going to trust these guys to run the country, then. Um, Maybe we should trust them with our financial system as well. And if, if yeah, if you don't, well, then maybe we, we need to. I, I don't buy into a lot of this fear talk anyway, because um, first of all, in my experience talking to politicians, they are terrified of inflation. Hmm. Australian politicians for years have been uh, have been terrified of being accused of uh, introducing policies that are inflationary, particularly, you know, the Labour Party go for an election. That's the mm. worst thing they want to be accused of, uh, that any of their policies would be irresponsible in any way and inflationary. Um, the right way to budget, once you understand modern monetary theory, is to make sure that you have a very well-resourced and highly skilled parliamentary budget office. And that parliamentary budget office 
is independent of the Treasury, as it is at the moment, and independent of political influence. And it should have the same sort of status um, as the Reserve Bank of Australia had. And then the Parliamentary Budget Office, every year, is expected to, well, at the moment, they look at the government's budget proposals and they assess the implications of those budget proposals for the fiscal balance in the years to come. But actually, they've got the wrong focus. What they should be doing is they should be turning themselves into the best inflation forecasters in Australia or hiring the best inflation forecasters in Australia. And it should be the job of the Parliamentary Budget Office every year when the budget comes out and before an election for both the government and the opposition to look very carefully at fiscal programmes and forecast over the next few years the potential for those programmes to contribute to inflation risk. Yeah, correct... now, yeah, go on. Now, now, I've got to push back a little bit on this one because um, we've got the RBA who's, in theory, um, you know, been, been doing uh, inflation forecasting and, and, and they've got quite a big staff there. So I'm assuming that's what they're, they're spending most of their money on. And they've effectively starting to give up now on, um, on inflation forecasts and, and, and have been terribly wrong with them for the last few years. So I guess what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to go with is, do you think, um, what do you think we're doing wrong with, with the inflation, well, what, what's the RBA been doing wrong with their inflation forecasting that that um, could be done right in, in a new organisation, or is it just that um, I guess they've got them they've got their economics sort of um, we're still using yesterday's economics to try and to try and describe today's economy. Absolutely, when it comes to forecasting inflation, um, the emphasis should be on getting uh, you know down and dirty with the data, really looking at the microeconomics of it. So if you're interested in the consumer price index, then you, you ought to be looking at the main components of the consumer price index. So uh, housing and energy and transport and education and healthcare, and of course there's, there's discretionary consumer spending as well, all the main elements. And you need to be looking at what you were talking about before. They, they, I don't think there's been enough emphasis on, on this in recent years. What's the spare capacity in these sectors of the economy? How much spare capacity is there out there at the mm. moment? Uh, and then on top of that, you need to be looking at uh, uh, monopoly power because you can see inflation pick up because of excess demand in various sectors of the economy. Uh, you can also see inflation pick up as a result of, of uh, monopoly power. And then when you're looking at budgeting for the years ahead, if it looks as though the direct and indirect consequence of the government's plans will push part of the economy um, uh, uh, towards or beyond its capacity in a way which is inflationary, then you've either got to look for pay-fors to deal with that uh, that that could sometimes involve taxation, but that doesn't mean taxes are literally paying for government spending. Or you've got to look at ways of uh, expanding that planning for and expanding that capacity and prioritising uh, and timing government spending so as to not push those sectors of the economy beyond their uh, beyond their capacity. And where monopoly power is an issue. Then you've got to look at competition policy and, uh, and sometimes at, uh, at regulation and 
and and how that monopoly power is being exercised and to try and try and uh, uh, deal with that um so competition productivity spare capacity those are the important issues where what the rba has got wrong for years is that for oh decades now we've had this view of the economy where it's been assumed really without very much empirical evidence that uh, you can use monetary policy in order not only to put downward pressure on inflation, they could certainly do that by creating a financial crisis if they wanted to, by jacking interest rates up. But you can, you can use monetary policy when inflation is below the level which is desirable, when unemployment is above where you'd like it to be, to push the economy forward. And it turns out that interest rate cuts um, after decades of rising private sector debt, especially household debt, don't work anymore. I've got into mm. trouble with famous economists like Stephen Kukoulos for saying this repeatedly recently. They, <laughs> they, uh, uh, they think I'm an idiot. But um, interest rate cuts put upward pressure on asset prices. So if you push interest rates down to zero, don't be surprised if the stock market goes through the roof and don't be surprised if property prices go up. I mean, that, that's just basic financial uh, mathematics. Um, you have well, interest rates on the bottom when you do present value formulas. But yeah. if you're trying to get people to spend more, interest rate cuts, they redistribute resources. Sure, some people have more disposable funds when interest rates are lower, but other people have less. People who are relying on term deposits, um, etc. Et, et the government pays less in interest on its existing debt over time as that debt rolls over when interest rates fall. So that's deflationary as well. And people who borrow more now because interest rates are lower, that's just a sugar hit. Next year, they're going to have more debt that they'll have to start repaying. And it's actually going to constrain spending in the future. Monetary policy doesn't add to the net financial assets of the private sector. Monetary policy can only act as a sugar hit when you're pushing the economy forward. Go back to the early 1990s when interest rates are very high and there's very little private debt. And when you cut interest rates, you'll stimulate spending in the economy. Come forward to 2020 and cut interest rates and you'll help to prop up asset markets. But you're not going to do very much to push the economy forward. And so what I've been saying for years is that the Reserve Bank has no bullets. Hmm. Hmm. Inflationary expectations. So that's this sort of I think there's been a bit of bit more pop up. You know, over the last little while, and I think even the the Fed was mentioning a bit about about how to you know some some thoughts on on that. Um, I guess there's this this there's this view around that um, if we if we're doing uh, if we're doing sort of not not official MMT where but it's but it's sort of quasi MMT where the government issues whatever a billion dollars sorry government spends a billion dollars. Uh, they then issue their bonds um, to, to soak it up, but but the central bank buys all those bonds anyway. So, which is, you know, I guess from from my perspective, and, and I think from yours, indistinguishably different from from just spending the tr the, the the billion dollars. Um, but there's an expectation that if they just go out and spend the billion dollars, that's inflationary, as opposed to the the, the sterilization, so to speak, by by passing it from one pocket to the other pocket. Have you got any thoughts on 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 that? It's the spending which is potentially inflationary. The funding of it really isn't. Um, mm. 
when you auction treasury bonds, uh, you are swapping, well, effectively, you're swapping exchange settlement reserves, which under normal circumstances are a highly liquid uh, interest-bearing financial liability of the general government sector for treasury bonds, which, given the secondary market for them, are a highly liquid interest-bearing <laughs> financial liability of, of the general government sector. So why you would think that bond issuance uh, re significantly reduces the inflationary risk of government spending, I don't know. And mm. then when, when you do quantitative easing or you get the central bank to do quantitative easing, of course, they're buying those government bonds back again. Well, that's not going to be an inflationary thing to do, except for the fact that it will have uh, a, a, an impact on long-term interest rates and yields and potentially on financial markets like the stock market. Um, it's not going to be inflationary more generally. Why would it be? The private sector ends up with interest-bearing balances at the RBA, albeit that interest rate is basically zero now. Um, and uh, the private sector no longer owns those interest-bearing treasury bonds. If anything, it could be mildly deflationary in the long run because the government is no longer paying interest to the private sector on those bonds. Sure, the ridiculous way we've set up the system, the government um, pays in inverted commas interest to the RBA, which means that the official public account of the RBA is debited by those interest payments. Those interest payments are then part of the Reserve Bank's profits for the year. They are then paid back to the Treasury in dividends. So it's it's just all unnecessarily complicated. And I think when Philip Lowe says, oh, we need to do things this way, rather than just buying the Treasury bonds directly from the government or giving the government uh, a permanent overdraft at the, at the RBA, I don't... He, he talks about credibility and inflation expectations, but I don't... To be honest, I don't think he believes what he's saying. Mm. He's never entirely credible, and he's well, usually I, very credible. He's a he's a, a, a brilliant man, usually very credible when he's talking about yeah. uh, about uh, uh, monetary policy. But um, once once they start talking about about uh, QE and distinguishing between QE and just simply buying the treasury bonds in the primary market, which is what happens in Canada to an extent. And in a variety of countries, in Indonesia this year, for example, then I, I, um, I don't think he's very credible. I, I really don't see what the difference is, as far as balance sheets are concerned, between the Australian Office of Financial Management auctioning treasury bonds and financial institutions buying those bonds and then financial institutions selling those bonds to the RBA. So you end up with the RBA holding the... Um, uh, Treasury bonds, and the government has had uh, uh, dollars credited to its spreadsheet sell its account, and, the and the financial institutions, financial institutions have also had some dollars credited to their accounts from. Uh, yeah, well, they, they make a profit as the middleman. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. how it works. <laughs> that's, that's why <laughs> you're not hearing complaints. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know what I like it, but I don't really see you end up with the mm. Reserve Bank holding the bonds anyway. Mm. It's, so it would be no different to if yeah. the Reserve Bank just took the bonds 
in yeah. the first place as non-marketable uh, treasury securities that uh, the Reserve Bank um, held on to, which the Fed has been doing that a little bit um, uh, uh, um, this year as part of its stimulus uh, 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 measures. I, I, perhaps I <laughs> we won't go into that now, but yeah. um, it's unnecessarily complicated. The whole system is unnecessarily complicated. All yeah. treasury but, bonds but, are but I guess what, transferable. I guess Sorry, go on. I guess, yeah, I guess what I'm getting to is um, if, if inflation expectations, and there's, there's a bit of research out now, you know, just sort of basically saying, well, maybe it's inflationary expectations that we need to, because, because all these other, the Phillips curve isn't working anymore and all these other factors we, we thought weren't, weren't working anymore. So maybe it's inflationary expectations, and, and in, which is a, a pretty good argument for flipping to MMT because if, if inflationary expectations stay low while, while, you know, reserve banks and treasury play this game of uh, cups where they're just passing the P between them, um, then maybe maybe just maybe just the, uh, the the branding so to speak of, of of MMT might increase inflationary expectations which might actually then lead to to more positive inflation I do have a tip for people which is if they want a Phillips curve that works then mm. they just need to uh, eliminate the unemployment rate from the horizontal axis and put the <laughs> underutilization rate there mm. because actually you do get a a, a Phillips curve shape with a reasonable fit in Australia in recent decades if you just put underutilization there and just reflect the fact that our official unemployment statistic has much less meaning than it once did. Yes. So we do not believe that it makes sense to try to get to full employment. And when I talk about full employment, I don't mean the so-called non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment that the RBA or the Treasury might talk about. I mean, 1960s-style full employment, 1% unemployment. Mm. We don't think you can get to a 1% to 2% uh, underutilisation rate instead of nearly 20% where it's been recently by just engaging in deficit spending um, uh, uh, right the way across the economy to get you there because of course you come up against bottlenecks the people who who benefit from the uh, that deficit spending are not the people that needed the help in the first mm -hmm. place uh, yes you come up against capacity utilization issues you run out of skilled labor and inflation picks up of course it does before you get to a situation where you've basically eliminated involuntary unemployment and that's why the one perhaps distinctive policy proposal that comes from modern monetary theory economists that to an extent you can divorce from uh, modern monetary theory because it's not part of the description of the monetary system, but it is something that we think would be a good idea as a better mousetrap, a better automatic fiscal stabiliser in our economy, is the introduction of a federal job guarantee. We would like to um, remove uh, the bottom buffer stock of unemployed workers, which is the approach that we've used to try and manage uh, inflation in uh, Australia and in other countries around the world for 40, 45 years now. Um, we'd like to replace that with a buffer stock of employed workers. We'd like everybody to have the opportunity, if they're not in full-time employment, to be employed in uh, uh, a range of activities uh, which would be managed locally, reflecting local uh, social and environmental needs, but funded 
federally, um, uh, um, uh, 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 should they become uh, 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 unemployed or, or be unable to get uh, full-time employment. It's important that if you're in a job guarantee, you're being paid at least at the legal minimum wage, you're having uh, decent working conditions, you have superannuation, you have leave, you have all all, Sorry. all that kind of stuff. Sorry but to this, jump in. Go on. I, I just want to focus this a little bit back more to the investment side. And I, I yeah, guess absolutely. Um, so I, I have sympathy for your role and I'd, I'd love to see it, particularly in research and development. Love to see that. But um, I, guess what I'm, I guess what I'm interested is uh, governments globally that um, you think are the closest to, um, to sort of accepting MMT. And just, and just before we, we kick off that one, actually, I, I, just, I had a question here bubbling away in the background that I might just pose to you to sort of set the scene a little bit as well. Um, just drawing on your full monetary sovereignty, uh, sovereignty um, line that you use there, which I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, the three tenets were freedom to create currency, a uh, free floating currency or an unpegged currency, and then, um, you know, note a little foreign debt. Yeah, Steve. Uh, note a little foreign currency denominated debt. Current, current, yeah. current currency, perfect. Um, for mine, that doesn't leave a lot of countries that can use MMT. Would I be correct in saying that? Is... Well, when, if we're talking about full monetary sovereignty, um, monetary sovereignty is a continuum. So as I was saying before, uh, we're bound to oversimplify a little bit when we discuss these things. But uh, uh, at one end of the continuum, sure, is the USA. But there are quite a number of countries that are um, close enough to the US on the continuum to be regarded as full monetary sovereign economies. So that would include Australia and New Zealand and Japan and Canada and the UK and some other countries as well, predominantly very high income um, countries. Uh, the, obviously, the Eurozone countries are not themselves uh, fully monetary sovereign because the currency issuer in the Eurozone is the European Central Bank. There is no European federal government at the top of the European monetary system, so they're in a different position. Incidentally, one of my graduate students has just done some ver uh, uh, very detailed statistical research, which uh, the, the results of which we'll, we'll publish before very long, which proves that if you are a monetary sovereign like Australia, you can ignore the credit rating agencies as far as the yield on government debt is concerned. Standard & Poor's and Moody's have absolutely no influence on the interest rate on Australian Commonwealth government debt. That's true of those other monetary sovereign economies too. It's not mm. true of non-monetary sovereigns. They're in a completely different case. That doesn't mean that MMT has nothing to say about them because modern monetary theory is not just about monetary sovereign governments. It is about... Um, certainly the, the, the fiscal space that you lose, what you're giving up uh, when you give up your monetary sovereignty, for example, joining uh, a currency area like the euro. And MNT economists were amongst the clearest people warning about mm -hmm. the fact that the eurozone was not well designed before it was introduced. And also about how if you don't have monetary sovereignty at the moment because you're an emerging economy, how you can build additional fiscal space for yourself, how you can build monetary sovereignty over time, including 
thinking about issues like energy sovereignty. A lot of economies in the next few years, and actually there are plenty of them that have got quite away already with this, are well positioned in terms of developing local renewable energy and reducing their dependence on imported fossil fuels. Um, that reduces the threat of a currency depreciation if you are not fixing your currency or not managing your currency as heavily in the future as you have done in the past. Um, it's also important in a lot of countries to look at issues like food sovereignty as well because one of the reasons why governments around the world are so scared of having a floating exchange rate is the risk that depreciation will increase the cost of imported basic necessities that are priced in foreign currency uh, that will increase the cost of living of people mm. already on the you know on the edge of uh, subsistence and uh, spread poverty and undermine social stability so we we're focusing a lot on those kind of issues but it's never going to be the case that lower income countries have the same sort of fiscal space that the US does. So then you need to look at issues in international finance, like net financial flows, how we've organized our global financial system. And isn't it strange that uh, lower income countries have not been the net recipients of financial flows in recent years. Instead, finance has gone in the other direction. It's gone from poor countries to rich countries, as poor countries' uh, financial uh, positions have been eroded um, over time. Interest payments on debt that they took out in previous years, obviously in foreign currency, they can't borrow in their own currency, uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, funds being repatriated by foreign multinationals. That, that You need to look, in other words, strategically in any particular country at how much fiscal space does the government have in order to pursue policies which um, will enhance the productive capacity of the economy and be in the public good in the years to come? Where you don't have a high degree of monetary sovereignty, how can you build that monetary sovereignty? And where there are governments that have, for one reason or another, um, got large uh, foreign currency-denominated liabilities um, then we need to look as a world, if we want, particularly if we want them to make the kind of investments which are going to build economies which are generally sustainable and that will help us to live within you know, 1.5 or 2 degrees global warming and all that. That's where you, you start looking at global finance and at the kind of support that high-income countries in the years to come in terms of the provision of hard currencies and your te te technological exports, that, that sort of thing. Um, we need to look at all those issues again. It means going back and looking at trade deals. But yes, MMT economists are very, very active in these areas because modern monetary theory is not just about full monetary sovereigns. It just so happens that in Australia, we are fortunate that we are a full monetary mm. sovereign. There's plenty of foreign investors that own Australian government bonds but the so, repayments on those bonds are in our own currency. That's the important. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, so Stephen, coming back to the which current which countries are, are closest? Um, 
Well, it depends what you mean by which countries are closest. That the full monetary sovereigns are the USA and Canada oh, no, and no, Japan. Sorry, I'm, I'm asking where um, where you think the that uh, modern monetary theory is making some inroads into policy decisions, as opposed to being um, you know, cast out as a uh, as an unwanted intruder on on traditional economic thinking. I think we are making uh, inroads into policy decisions everywhere. Mm. Uh, 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 that doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to get the governor of the Japanese central bank saying that kind of thing in public, but we are making inroads everywhere, even in Australia. Uh, uh, MMT is having more influence now. We've got past the point where we were being ignored We've got past the point where we were being uh, laughed at. We have got to the point now where in academia, there are a lot of people who are very upset and offended because we are questioning some of the things they've held dear for a long time, but where increasingly in finance and also amongst government economists, if not politicians themselves, um, People are uh, people are, are listening and they're engaging. I've done a couple of webinars with ANZ over the last year. I've done a talk, and I'm you know I'm I'm a minor player. I've done a talk at, at, at the Depart Department of uh, Prime Minister and Cabinet in Canberra. Um, people are um, listening because policy economists and people working in financial institutions too, well, policy economists just want to understand the world better. They want a better set of tools. Mm. And if you can convince them that they ought to at least be aware of what you're, uh, uh, what you're discussing, then they'll listen. Um, well, and I think market economists are, are, are happy to say, look, we can see things aren't working. What are the other options out there? What do you want us to be thinking about? It's it's more the uh, the people, I guess, who have the ear of, of governments, and, and so and obviously Stephanie Kelton was um, Bernie Sanders' um, uh, economic advisor, but but I, I don't think it, uh, any of that seeped into the Biden administration. Well, it depends what you mean by seeped in. People mm. have very you know, maybe people have short uh, uh, memories. Even in Australia, you know, last year, if you were to look at the budget papers, it would tell you that the government's strategy was to run a a, uh, a fiscal surplus on average over the economic cycle. Yep. Not that any government has ever done that in Australia, except the Howard government since Federation, really. But but that's what for years they've said their fiscal strategy is. Now I don't know whether they'll even put that in the next set of budget papers, but it's going to look pretty ridiculous because everybody knows uh, yeah. that everybody knows that's, that's not going to happen. We're not going and to run people a are understanding other things too. Now, I'll just give you one other concrete um, thing that I've, uh, I've found uh, uh, policymakers uh, and some politicians as well, quietly, um, interested in, in thinking about. When the pandemic struck in March this year, um, the government announced basically that it was prepared to do uh, $200 billion of uh, deficit spending. Now, the old story is the government would go and borrow $200 billion in order to be able to spend it. The only way that you can pay for treasury bonds in Australia 
is to either directly or indirectly use exchange settlement reserves that the private banks have at the RBA. That's what pays for Treasury bonds when they're issued. There were about $35 billion worth of such reserves in existence in March this year when the government announced $200 billion worth of deficit spending. Now, once I explain that to people, they think, oh, well, how's that work then? And then you explain, well, that's because the government actually has to spend the dollars into the system or, and there's been a lot of this, the Reserve Bank has to put the dollars into the system itself by lending or by buying financial assets before those dollars are available to buy the Treasury bonds. It's that way around. The old story that you have to tax and borrow before you spend is clearly shown to be wrong. Mm. You actually have to spend the dollars into the system before you can tax or borrow those dollars back out of the system again. That's the way the monetary system works. It's just factual. And the most powerful thing that I, I, I usually find myself saying, if I'm talking to policy politicians or their advisors or other economists, is what I've just said is just pure fact. There's nothing you can disagree with me on. But when you understand it, it just changes the way you think about government finance. The, the the question there, I guess, Stephen, though, is, and I guess, you know, we, we're we very good in, and I guess as a population, or m- maybe looking locally at um, the RBA sort of dictating whether or not the economy is running hot or, or needs, um, you know, needs some help vis-a-vis the, the monthly meeting uh, outcome uh, on, on the rates. Um, the question for mine, and I think I think you're right with the you know t- taxation being effectively a demand drag, if you will, or, mm. or a, you know, a stimulatory me- measure. But the problem is that you, we can't just announce it on a, a monthly basis that everyone's going to need to you know the, the the tax rates are going up by half a percent or down by half a percent. You know, is that is that a limiting factor in I guess implementing you know what is otherwise a pretty pretty um, easy to understand component of of, of MMT. I don't think so. I'm quite comfortable with the RBA being independent in terms of setting interest rates. If we've got, if people like the system, we can keep it. It doesn't do any harm. Um, but I can tell you what's going to happen to interest rates over the next few years, which is nothing or mm. nothing much. Um, because a- any significant increase in interest rates, there's still enough uh, fragility out there in the financial system would just make things crappy, so they're not going to put interest rates up a lot, and they can't put them down. So we may as well forget the RBA. There isn't anything they can do, really. Even quantitative easing doesn't do do that much. If you're worried about Mm. it putting upward pressure on the stock market, then uh, APRA could do something about that with the, you know, with a bit of legislation behind them. You could could ban borrowing um, secured on financial assets. There's lots of things you could do if you wanted to limit upward pressure on the stock market, if you thought that was an important, uh, that was an important thing to do. But low interest rates, we've got them forever. I actually don't think it's been a good thing Mm. in the past when they have changed interest rates every month. So far from it being a disadvantage, um, I think it's an advantage. I don't want them changing stuff every month, but that's where... And not to go back to the job guarantee again, that's where what we need is more effective, automatic fiscal stabiliser. Mm. Where... And, and so then... Sorry, go on. I was just going to say, so then pivoting across from the RBA to the tax side, though, you haven't quite got that um, 
you know, that resolution on, on being able to alter tax rates, um, you know, in, in reference to, you know, stimulating or supporting um, the economy. As a population, you, you know, the, the government of the day can't decide that, you know, I'm, we're, we're going to try and control inflation or, you know, or, or stimulate the economy by, although, you know, I guess there's an argument this year where we have, have had some tax uh, cuts. Um, but, you know, raising tax tax rates is, is, is a very difficult political challenge, um, even though, you know, it, it's a um, it is a good demand, you know, um, remover from from the economy and, and, and in slowing it down. So, well, you don't necessarily have to do that. When we say that taxation is important to limit inflationary pressures, that's not the same thing as saying that if you're worried about uh, uh, inflationary pressures, you need to raise taxes. And um, mm. there are lots of uh, uh, potential pay-fors out there. Um, Potentially, uh, if you thought it was useful, you could increase interest rates. Uh, I think that uh, macro prudential regulation is more useful, actually, uh, my mm-hmm. self, as far as uh, as far as limiting uh, um, inflationary pressure on that side. But on the on the other side, there are all those issues that I was talking about before. When you're thinking about the inflationary consequences of what you're doing, you need to look at issues like productive capacity and whether it exists or whether you can create it. Um, uh, If you are thinking about big government investments in the economy, then if if you believe that they're going to be inflationary, you may have to limit actually going ahead and doing them in the the first place. Um, It it may be that uh, you may raise taxes. When people say it's incredibly difficult to raise taxes, that's because of a, let's use the word, that's because of a neoliberal campaign going back over 40 years. It didn't used to be. Australia had a far more progressive tax system, incredibly more progressive tax system, in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, even the 1980s, than it does now. So that's a modern phenomenon. It's not necessarily going to change. There are other things you could do as well, you could vary um, contributions into superannuation while you've got a super system based on, uh, on uh, if you thought that it was necessary in a Green New Deal, say, to make big public sector investments, you worried about that being inflationary, uh, you could lock up people's savings for mm. a while. There are lots so of things you could do. Uh, raising taxes is just one of them. That doesn't mean that I think that it's impossible to uh, to raise taxes uh, and if if it has become so because of the game of mates that we've had in Australia because of all the grey corruption that's built up and the enormous political influence from lobby groups then that's a separate issue that needs addressing in the next generation. Very good. Thanks for that. Uh, questions, Tim? Yeah, sure. Look, um, there was one here that, that popped out before we were sort of talking around um, inflation. That there's a more a comment from uh, commenter David. Uh, RBA just needs to put housing prices back into inflation data, and they'll hit their targets, and then we can put the rates up again. <laughs> um, you're talking about automatic stabilizers. That's that's probably probably an interesting um, approach. Thoughts on that one? So, well, I suppose so, but um, uh, you know they've. they've Statisticians argue that the, in what the consumer price index is supposed to measure, that um, the um, house prices uh, are not—they're not part of what should be in the consumer price index. 
housing costs are in the consumer price uh, index, mm. but um, if you cut interest rates down to zero, then that is going to put upward pressure on asset prices. We are seeing and continue to see. And of course, in Australia, we've got another distortion, a political distortion. Whoever is in the government, they are absolutely terrified here, much more than they are about the country burning down or anything. They are terrified of a property price crash. So there is nothing that it's like the green pack, Greenspan put in the US with monetary policy around the year 2000. Uh, if the stock market fell, they'd cut interest rates. Well, in Australia, if there's any signs of the property market imploding, the government will do absolutely anything. It doesn't mean that a, a time might not come at some point in the future where there's some sort of Minsky moment where whatever the government does might not be enough. But um, they'll do virtually anything. Uh, to prop up the property market. And on top of that, we've got as close to zero interest rates as as it would be wise for us to have. Well, actually, that's, that's, both, both of those come into uh, an interesting question, Stephen, for, on, on um, the TFF, which I think somebody was asking there as well. And I better just, just for the listeners, um, let me just put it, this into a little bit of perspective. And, and we've spoken about it a few times on here. So the term funding facility is effectively yeah. the, the, the Reserve Bank um, saying, well, interest rates have hit zero for our overnight rate. But what we're going to do instead is we're going to create a three-year three year facility and we're actually going to lend directly to the banks provided that they then give it to businesses or uh, or homeowners. And it's and uh, at the moment, it's 0.1%, I think, in Australia. So, so basically, the, the RBA will lend to banks cheaper than what a state government can borrow um, if, if they'll go out and put it into to home loans. And that's why you're seeing such cheap rates on three-year rates and usually cheaper than, than overnight. And the effect in Australia has been to drive interest rates below 2%. Um, in uh, Europe, they've got the same system and they're now up to paying 1% to anyone who will lend. And so effectively what happens is if you take out a loan in, in France or Germany and you pay half a percent in interest and then the central bank will go and top up that by another 1%. To, so basically double your whatever you've paid in interest and give that to the bank in order to try and you know get lending up there it's and not so, a wise thing to do is it, it it's um it's we know why they've done it as far as the yeah. term funding facility is concerned here that's a little bit of a byproduct of rules relating to uh bank liquidity uh, net stable funding ratio rules they're called which were uh, uh implemented around the world uh, after the global financial crisis, when there were liquidity rules introduced, which didn't exist before, which means that um, uh, banks cannot rely just on overnight funds or on overnight and money market funds uh, in order to fund the liability side of their balance sheet. So it put more pressure on banks to compete more aggressively for deposits, but also to borrow longer term. So although money market rates are very low, what the RBA is doing is allowing the banks to meet their net stable funding ratio requirements at those very low interest rates too. That's basically what that facility was about. The facility, I don't think, has stimulated any significant increase in lending by the banks, on the other hand. It has reduced their funding costs marginally and initially when it was introduced the take-up was quite slow hmm. uh, uh, um, uh, as well so i don't think it's 
all that important. I think it's more a, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's more to do with the um, regulatory rules under the Bank for International Settlements um, um, rules or the Basel rules, as they're sometimes called, and just um, meeting those rules and, than anything else. But yeah, we've got virtually zero uh, um, uh, interest rates, um, even quite far across the yield curve now. Uh, and default risk-free uh, interest rates. And as far as the cash rate is concerned, it doesn't really exist anymore. There is hardly any overnight lending happening in the banking mm. system because of quantitative easing. And, and with the RBA doing another $100 billion of it over the next few months, then that's going to continue to be the case. If you go on the RBA site, and you look at the spreadsheet where they give you the, the cash rate, um, it's not 0.1%, the so-called target cash rate. The, what, it, what they usually say is each day at the moment is 0.05 of a percent. But even then, there have been a lot of days in the last few months when when you look at the number of overnight transactions, it just says not available or not <laughs> applicable because there basically haven't been any. And so when they tell you what the cash rate is it's just well you know there was some overnight lending two or three days ago we'll say that's the cash rate there isn't a cash market at the moment there is no overnight cash market and the cash rate that we still pretend the reserve bank is targeting doesn't exist mm. Mm, that's that's where we've got to and we've yeah. got we've we it that is uh, a lot of that is because we've been looking to the Reserve Bank to do things that the Reserve Bank is not equipped to do. Um, uh, if you want to push demand forward and bring about a recovery, then you need the government, far from cutting back on support they've introduced, they need to be maintaining that support for longer uh, and perhaps running an even bigger fiscal deficit across this financial year than they would otherwise have done. The more uh, or, or as we discussed at school, a, a better targeted one. <laughs> yeah, a better targeted as well. But also, yeah. um, we do need, however you do it, and one way of doing this would be a more progressive tax system, but I, as I said, would be in favour of, I would have uh, um, phased out JobKeeper and replaced it with a, with a job guarantee. We need a, a, a better automatic fiscal stabiliser. So that we, when the economy needs it, the deficit automatically gets bigger. When we the economy doesn't need it, it shrinks. Yeah, and we didn't even talk about that in terms of the pointing the budget in the wrong direction. We've done exactly the opposite of what you wanted, though. We've cut the tax rates on the on the highest people and reduced the um, job seeker and job keeper. We've started to phase it out. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. That's part of our narrative that we've had for... Inequality has been rising in Australia more or less continuously since 1975. At some point, again, not to come over as a lefty, but at some point um, we have to address these issues because, I mean, if we, guess, if we keep going in this direction, you are inevitably basing the prosperity of the economy on iron ore prices and the willingness of households to go further and further and further into debt. Mm. And, and um, that's not a sustainable thing to do yeah. in the long run uh, and um, well, you it get led us to zero interest rates. Inevitably, we were going to get to zero interest rates, not just in Australia, but
but in other countries too. If you keep cutting interest rates to encourage people to go further and further into debt, and in other countries it's often businesses that have been going further and further uh, into debt, then that sugar hit, you can do it again and again and again, but it's going to mean interest rates get cut and cut and cut again, and you are inevitably on a path to zero interest rates when it won't work anymore. I don't think mm. negative interest rates are effective. Uh, and at that point, you have to turn around and think, well, there's been something wrong with what we've been doing, or maybe it could work for a while because of the set of balance sheets that existed in the early 1990s, having uh, a, a situation where fiscal policy was supposed to be neutral and the central bank was supposed to run the economy by, by nudging interest rates up or down, more often down than up. Maybe it worked in 1993, but balance sheets have changed and it's yeah. not going to work now. So we need to turn around and, and think about another approach. And whereas modern monetary theory is not a specific approach to managing the economy, it's just a lens. Um, so in a way, when people say, where has MMT been introduced? I almost don't know what to say in answer. I don't want politicians to talk about modern monetary theory. Mm. I don't want them to mention it in the budget speech. I just want them to make decisions based on an understanding of it. They don't ever have to mention it. Um, mm -hmm. But once you understand that there is a difference between the currency issuer and currency users, and we've been running our economy by encouraging currency users to go further and further and further into debt, and you end up risking uh, what we sometimes call Minsky and financial instability when you do mm. that, if there was a major downturn, if we hadn't had big fiscal support in Australia this year, the property market would have crashed and there would have been a tidal wave of defaults and a yeah. major depression. So what mm. stopped us doing that? Well, what stopped us doing that is the government turned around, having said they couldn't afford to run deficits and how important it was to run a surplus, and suddenly they ran a huge deficit. Um, uh, uh, the, so well done, government. The only thing I would have uh, uh, given them at least five out of ten for their response in March. I wouldn't have used the same measures as them, but it was good that they were prepared to to act on a, a reasonably big scale and to act quickly. Uh, the the biggest argument I had with Josh Frydenberg at the time is when he said it's because of our fiscal responsibility in the last few years that we've been in a position to do this. That is, <laughs> from an MMT perspective, utter mm. and complete nonsense. The Japanese government has six times as much debt as the Australian government. The Japanese government was no less able to support its economy using, uh, using its budget than the Australian one. Understanding that when you don't face an inflation constraint at the moment, that you have no purely financial constraint, is a really important insight. It's a very simple one, but it's a really important insight. It's neither left-wing nor right-wing. Uh, it's something that Josh Frydenberg could benefit from understanding in the years to come. Um, but the, and the Minsky moment, um, you know, that's, I think you've, you sort of touched on something that's near and dear to my heart as well, though, mm. is that, um, as you said, you know, his, his whole thing is that uh, stability breeds instability eventually, because for for everyone who's out there rushing to, to 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 buy to get to get a loan and gear up now to take advantage of the um, of the lower interest rates. It's the, it's the thought that 
it's the more and more debt you, you you pile on, and so that just means the next the next crisis we go into there instead of with one hundred and twenty percent yeah debt to GDP household debt to GDP we go in there with one hundred and fifty or one hundred and sixty or or two hundred you know it's, and then and if that and if and if we get bailed out again then then you just got to pile on more and more money and and you sort of end up in this whole the part about yeah, if you know the government's got your back, then you may as well just get as much debt as possible until one day they actually say, well, you know what, we can't afford to, to keep letting the people who have geared the most win the most out of this. We actually need to let some people fail and, and capitalism resume. But I don't well, think well that, that's the sort of Austrian approach. That's the, that's the, but that's, you see, I, I don't, I, I'm not attracted to that. that no, I'm not, I'm not saying looking at it because it's like saying, let's not have fire engines. Let's have no fireys uh, when a fire breaks out because actually no, no. you should have been much more careful in the first place. So no, what no. I think you need regulation, and I think we did have, and Minsky wrote about this too, financial mm. systems, they often call it financial suppression or financial repression, mm. not being allowed to do things or having financial institutions that are limited in the range of activities they're allowed to engage in. But actually, it worked pretty well. Throughout the history of capitalism, there have been regular banking crises every 10 years or so prior to the Second World War. And then, of course, in recent decades, we've had close to financial crises or financial crises in the 80s and 90s. And then we got the global financial crisis and all that. Um, But there really weren't any between 1945 and the 80s to speak of. And the reason for that was we had a fairly tightly regulated financial system. And we could, wouldn't have the same regulations now, but we can go back to that again. APRA had moved a little bit in the right direction three or four years ago. They were tightening up on investment mortgages. They were tightening up on interest only mortgages, amongst other things. in the last year or, or, or year and a half, I think they've reversed again. So they've <laughs> yeah, relaxed. It's a big mistake. Yeah, but I guess what I'm saying is, if if there's no if there's no penalty for you know making a mistake and having too much debt when the when the economy goes into a downturn, then doesn't it just mean for everyone you just gear up as much as you can? Like it's mm. a, it's a um, I'm not arguing a full Austrian. Okay, everyone has to take a. Um, Everyone has to take the the the, the losses, and we'll, we'll all get better eventually. But I do think there's an element of saying, well, if nobody takes a loss, then all all that happens is speculation becomes rife. And, and Absolutely, I think if you if you personally make unwise decisions, or your institution does, definitely mm. you should lose out as a result of that. I think if uh, if uh, uh, if banks have to be rescued uh, 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 following a crisis then the shareholders of those banks should lose. Yes. Uh, but that doesn't mean the bank should be allowed to fail. No, um, no, no, absolutely. But, but we can't. I mean, this is if, if you're not far, careful, you can end up going quite far towards a, a left-wing view of the world. I see our commercial bankers anyway as basically public servants. They are basically public servants because they are working for institutions, the Commonwealth Bank, the ANZ, Westpac, NAB, well, which will never, ever be allowed to become insolvent. Oh, well, and now they're funded they are too by important the t- in our monetary system. The t- their, t- jobs, t- yeah, mm. their jobs are safer uh, than working for a state government in some ways. 
Mm. Uh, they're never going to be, they're far too big and powerful to fail. Now, how are you going to go about changing this? You need to have, you need to start talking about, as Bernie Sanders said, about if a bank's too big to fail, it's too big to exist. Mm. And that means you then need to say, well, we don't actually have massive economies of scale in banking. Uh, not anymore. We don't actually need massive banks. So what about limiting the size and scope of private financial institutions in Australia? Or uh, there are all sorts of other options that you could take as well. Um, I'm not saying you should necessarily do that, but I am saying that uh, it is something that it would be interesting for people to think about a little bit more. Why do we need such large financial institutions, which is so very powerful? The state government in South Australia tried to raise a little bit of tax, because our state government is not a currency issuer, by uh, um, taxing the banks. And the, the, the flack they took from it, they had to <laughs> back down almost straight away. These institutions are enormously powerful and influential. Even after the Banking Royal Commission, really not very much has happened mm. because they're so powerful. Now, maybe we need them to be so powerful, but maybe we, maybe we don't. Uh, if we are going to have institutions which are this large and too big to fail, and if we are going to have a property market that's so inflated that its collapse would be utterly catastrophic for the economy as a whole, then we need to look very carefully at how we're regulating these institutions and their behaviour insofar as it impacts on that market and uh, whether we're doing it effectively or not, which I think part of the outcome of the Banking Royal Commission was, no, we're not. Mm. Um, but I, I, I'm not clear that anything very fundamental um, has changed. So, uh, yeah, yes, but I agree with you. People should be able to make losses and businesses should be able to make losses. But unfortunately, we have a system where there are certain institutions that cannot be allowed to fail. And we have a market which, if it crashed, would be utterly catastrophic as far mm -hmm. as the economy is concerned. So um, we need to... Um, maybe step back and, and look at how we think about that market and housing in general and housing affordability and mortgages and how are these things done in other countries because not all other countries have the same approach we do. And, and as far as those private institutions are concerned, do we need a government bank? The Commonwealth Bank used to be in the government. Okay. I think I think we could we we could spend the rest of the afternoon on this one. I think we've yeah. <laughs> a whole another whole topic. Another, another ten MT really. Even. Yeah. <laughs> but I I agree with you fundamentally. We we um we have uh we have a financial system which would have crashed had the government not acted very aggressively with fiscal policy this year. Uh, the quantitative easing from, uh, helps a bit, of course, because it holds up financial markets. Uh, as well, and the property market. Um, but yes, uh, uh, in the medium-term future, our uh, our financial system and the level of private debt, especially household debt, is still a problem that needs addressing. Absolutely. 
That's uh, a, a great note to finish on as well, Stephen. Thanks very much for that. Um, no We've got uh, now. We've, we have gone a bit over time, and I'm, I'm mindful of your time. Um, we can jump into the investment implications uh, now if you've got a few more moments, and um, and then we can sort of finish up the show. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Lovely. All right, I'll I'll hand over to Damien just for a, a run through on on your thoughts with the investment implications as well, Damien. Yeah. Look. Um. So I've got this long list up there of positives and negatives that we we spoke about um over the last few weeks and. Uh, you know, I think we're we're certainly of the view that um, the negative ones are well, sorry, the positive ones tend to be uh, tend to be shorter term um, issues, mm. uh, and that we do have these factors that can that are that, that can um, uh, that could cause significant problems if if and when um, we decide to actually you know, start looking at bankruptcies and mortgage repayment holidays and evictions and, and things like that, which which are all sort of coming up. Um, but the flip side is uh, pretty much every country that's ever had one of these pop up has, has extended the date, and mm. um, we think that's probably going to be the case again in Australia and 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 the US and, and other countries. And so, you know, the negative factors, you know, provided that the the virus hasn't sort of um, you know, the virus increasing in in uh, intensity in in northern hemisphere hasn't sort of driven the markets down as of yet. Um, it, it does seem to point to the fact that we've got a, a, a three, six-month period where the markets are pretty much going to ignore earnings and valuation, and, um, and we're going to see, I guess, any negative effects aren't going to come to account because um, they'll just get extended, and um, the positive uh, events of there's, – there's lots of cover for governments to spend lots of money, as we've sort of seen in state budgets here recently, and, and we're seeing right around the globe is that there's lots of cover for, for governments to spend lots of money. So um, it's, it's a uh, – it's not an, it's not a capitalist position where we find ourselves in, and um, you know I guess what we're we're, we're positing is you know, we we've got some ex- a fair bit of exposure to to equity markets now a lot more than we had um, a couple of weeks ago, and um, it's it's a matter of looking for policy mistakes really in terms of the investment side because everything's being run from either central banks or or, or federal governments, and so um, policy mistakes are the things to watch out for. Very good. Uh, anything else to to note on that one? I think we're that's that's happy to cover off there. Finish up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. finish up there. I think. Yeah, I think yeah we have gone very over time. Look, there. Yeah, th- thank you, Stephen, for uh, your wonderful thoughts and uh, for and plenty of your time as well. Your your precious time. And um, I just thought I might quickly offer uh, to our audience just ways that they can follow some of your work and and uh, track track where you're what you're up to. Um, well, thanks very much. Yeah, uh, we will um, probably in March next year. We'll be launching a uh, a, a new think tank called uh, Modern Money Lab. That uh, is not up and running yet. It's going to be for the finance sector and uh, uh, funded by some individuals in the finance sector. Uh, I I have a campaign group at the moment, which is about modern monetary theory and other things, called the Sustainable Prosperity Action Group which has a website, uh, which is not difficult to find if people want to uh, Google it. Um, Other than that, if you're interested in learning more about modern monetary theory, I recommend the website stephaniekelton.com. And I I recommend, if you haven't read it, her New York Times bestseller, uh, The Deficit Myth, which was published in the uh, um, middle of the, the year which is easily the best-selling economics book on any topic 
this year and there are lots of videos of Stephanie. There's even a few of me <laughs> interested but uh, <laughs> on the internet if you want to learn more. Uh, I Excellent. think Stephanie is a very important economist and will be for the next 20 years. Absolutely. All right. Well, look, yeah, thanks again. We'll, uh, we'll, we thank you for your time and uh, we certainly look forward to getting you back on the show. I think we've uncovered a, a series of topics that are almost deserve their own show as well. So we'll tick-tack through and, um, and get you on, on uh, as soon as we can as well, Stephen. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much. No trouble. Cheers. And uh, thanks to you, Damien, as well for another good show. Thanks, Tim. All good. Uh, now, uh, the viewer question of the week, actually, and I, on reflection, I, I might change this a little bit, but I've got which country do you think will successfully implement, implement the MMT? Now, I think we've covered on the fact that pretty much everyone's already doing it. So um, maybe it's implement the understanding of MMT uh, and perhaps a universal basic income. Feel free to drop your answers uh, in the chat box in the YouTube video, of course, and we'll look forward to uh, picking through those and, uh, and, and chatting around those. So uh, on that note, thanks again to all of those who have watched in live for another great episode. And uh, to all those, of course, who've asked questions as well, I hope you've taken away some great ideas. Uh, if you'd like to see more of our content, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash content to stay up to date on news from us, follow us on social media. And finally, if you know anyone who gets something out of today's episode, let them know about it, share with a friend and help our show grow. So thanks again for tuning in from myself, Tim Fuller and the team, and we look forward to catching you at the next one. Cheers.